Hello. Uh, the reading will be from Luke chapter 20, starting at verse 19. Ooh. Let's read along. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that, they, that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is no, that there is, no, sorry those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now then, there were seven brothers, the first took a wife and died without children, and the second and third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterwards, the woman also died, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and the sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, but they no longer dared to ask any questions. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? But David, David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around <coughs> in long robes and love greeting in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they, are, they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty. But in all she had to do. Afternoon and welcome. 
Ezekiel nie macht das, aber er joined with us. And I'm going to be speaking from that part of uh, Luke's gospel, biography of Jesus. And because it's God's word, or we hear it in Bible group, hold that what's in the Bible is given to us from God. I'm going to ask God to help us understand it. I'm going to ask God to help me to explain it uh, as well. And uh, so if you want to agree with that, you can say amen at the end. But uh, yeah, stay as you are. Lord, thanks for the word that you've given us from Luke, speaking of the Lord Jesus. Please open our eyes and our ears to what you have us understand today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. You might have noticed in that reading that there are challenges made to Jesus or of Jesus. And if you've been with us, you'll notice that challenges are nothing new, except in this chapter they're heightened. Because Jesus is now in the capital city, Jerusalem. His city, you could say, his kingdom. He's no longer way out in the in the back country, you know, out in Dubbo or somewhere like that, teaching. He's now in the capital city, city uh, Canberra. Um, <laughs> and so what he's saying actually is significant and he can't just be let run loose and do whatever he likes. And at that very moment, I don't think you've the first part of the reading, the chief priests, the, the leaders, are actually seeking to lay hands on Jesus right at this very time. Uh, not the sending out missionary type laying on his hands. If you know them, these are, they can't wait to get their hands on him and kill him, we're told. But the crowd is in the city listening to him. Well, they're actually a protection to Jesus. I remember from before, the crowds out in the country were a, were a threat to Jesus. They pressed in on him. Here, they're actually a protection to Jesus, and so the authorities won't touch Jesus because the crowd love him. And what it means is these challenges that come happen in public and allows Jesus to respond in public and so to just keep his ministry going for some time. It's not going to last for very long. They're going to have their way with him very, very soon. But the challenges are there. Well, um, I'll get you to think about these challenges. Actually, I'll get you to think about what challenges have you heard uh, of Jesus? That is, things about him that people have challenged. Something <coughs> perhaps. Or maybe challenges that you've had, either now or in the past. Of Jesus, <coughs> who he is, what he stands for. What's the way take it out of each other across the table? Uh, once you have a chat on the table, what things you notice challenging Jesus? Yeah. 
It's a challenge of Jesus. You didn't die. Yeah. Um, any knowledge as to who said that? Uh, one of the guys is um, an atheist in my class for the Catholic background. Or Jesus didn't actually die. Ah, sometime later. Oh, sometime later. Yep. I thought you were going to say uh, maybe someone who's Muslim, because uh, Muslims. Hold on, the Quran uh, holds that Jesus did not die. Um, the deep hole is with this. Yep. Um, maybe one over this side. <coughs> Will he come back again? Yeah. Is he really going to stick to his word that he'll come back? Can he actually pull it off? Is, it? Yeah. is there any substance to it? Yeah. Um, I'm sure there are many others. There's plenty of them. And you've probably, and hopefully you might even have your own that you, you think the things that have been challenges to you in, in the past or even now. And these challenges that come to Jesus, uh, then or now, are fair enough. They should be brought and they should be put to Jesus because of the claims that he's made. If you remember last week, he came into the city and he was welcomed into the city by his disciples, the multitude, who acclaimed him as the king of God's kingdom, the king of the city, the one who is going to rule and heaven and earth are behind him in his rule as God's king. Now, if he's going to make that claim, then he's got to be able to make it stick and back it up and meet the challenges that people bring to him. And it's fair enough. And if you're going to make a big claim, then you've got to back it up. And so Jesus should meet these challenges. Well, what are they? Well, verse 20. So they watched him and sent him spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver, deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. See, this first challenge of Jesus without authority, well, Luke tells us it's not an unbiased Observation, not an unbiased inquiry. Uh, they've got an agenda behind it. We could be describing those TV interviews of politicians, couldn't they? Uh, pretending to be sincere that they might catch him out in something that he said. They're not impartial, they're seeking understanding, but nonetheless, it's a challenge. Why not? They butter him up nicely. They say, You teach rightly, you show no partiality, unlike us. And then they play their ace card to Jesus. 
Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, Caesar, they know, he's the Roman uh, emperor at the time, and his rule over the Roman Empire is just about as welcome in Jerusalem amongst the Jewish people as Donald Trump would be welcome in North Korea. Maybe it's anywhere. Uh, <laughs> not welcome. They've never met this Caesar. They, they know who he is, they, but they know he's real. Uh, like it or not, they know he's real because they're paying taxes to this Caesar. So the dilemma for Jesus is becomes obvious. To say no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, is to rebel against Caesar's authority. Jews are, Jews are happy with that, except that, because you rebel against Caesar's authority, he invites the Romans to actually come in and uh, sack the city, which, which they do. So it's, a, it's an issue of national security for Jesus to be saying, no, it's not lawful. But on the other hand, of course, if he says, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, he's just being a national traitor. He's not actually a good bloke on our side. And Jesus perceives their craftiness. And so he asks for one of these tax coins, one of these tribute coins. And one of the guys who's there says, oh, look, I've got one right here. Um, rather hypocritical, <coughs> isn't it? They're questioning Jesus about paying this temple coin, uh, this, ta- this uh, Caesar's coin, and they happen to have one. Um, you can notice that in the Gospels, Jesus never seems to carry money. I'm not sure. I need to do another read of that. But you know, Jesus never seems to have money on him. So if you don't have any money on you, cheerio to you. It's like Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so they give the coin to Jesus. Uh, whose likeness? Caesar. Uh, verse 25. Jesus said, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. That's not bad. Give the Caesar the thing to the Caesar and give the God the thing to God. Probably once every three years I can come up with something clever like that uh, if I've got a chance to work on it. The problem is it's all the rubbish attempts in between. Uh, it's probably just better if I stay silent uh, than say anything. Jesus here answers the challenges and they are silenced with a marvellous answer. But it's more than just a clever answer. Jesus tells us in this one statement about how to relate to secular authorities, which the New Testament is going to elaborate on. I'll do outline three basic ones. Firstly, secular authorities are no threat to God's authority. Secular authorities are not a threat to God's authority. Jesus could say, pay your taxes to see and give to God what is God's without any words. In fact, number two, submitting to Jesus leads to quite comfortably submitting to very unchristian authorities. The the emperor was, of course, nothing at all, even slightly Christian or perhaps even God-fearing, and yet Jesus can say, submit to the emperor and pay your tax. Which, thirdly, in particular, pay your tax to our secular authorities. It's a good thing. And it's a good thing even if you know 
your taxes are going to be used badly, wrongly, inefficiently, unjustly to do things that you disagree with. You can still pay your tax and should pay your tax. No doubt, that's how the tax is paid for season with Jesus. Unjustly, wrongly, certainly not the service of Jesus in the gospel. And so there's actually a great freedom for the Christian conscience here not to have to bear the, the weight of guilt of what am I actually giving my money towards when I pay the taxes that the government's requiring me to pay? If they're supporting things that I think are unjust, I don't need to bear the weight of that guilt. The Lord is sovereign, he'll use your taxes to bring about whatever ends he seeks to bring about, whether it's well spent, wasted, or unjustly used. Of course, if you have the option of taking some action and within the Lord's protest or withhold paying fees or levies of some sort out of good conscience, then do so. But pay taxes. All well and good. Romans 13, um, if you want to look it up later on. Um, with great joy, pay taxes too. It's a, it's a good thing to enjoy giving the government money. Um, and those of us are doing something that's really good. So uh, enjoy it. Make the most of it. God's thing is great. So learn to enjoy it. Come tax time, depending on you are paying tax, uh, learn to enjoy it. And don't fiddle your boss study forms um, as well, which is certainly like the opposite at this stage of life, fiddling your tax, um, fiddling your boss study a lot harder to do that these days, aren't you? On to the second challenge in verse 27. And it's a challenge about life after death. The only time in Luke's Gospel is where we, is where we meet these guys called Sadducees. Uh, Luke tells us, verse 27, it came to him some Sadducees, those who deny there is a resurrection. And so go saying, if you know it, the Sadducees are sad, you see. Because they don't believe in the resurrection. There you go, I can go look at Sunday school. The Sadducees are sad, you see. <laughs> they challenge Jesus with a situation uh, that seeks to undermine the whole basis of Jesus' ministry. Namely, there's no life after death, it doesn't exist. And so they put forward this scenario to Jesus to prove that life after death, there is no life after death. And if you've seen the Mark drama, Beautifully um, portrayed to us a few weeks ago. Uh, you'll know this section. In fact, a lot of fun. Uh, the acting out of this little section. Lots of fun, lots of puns. Uh, there's the woman who married a guy. The guy dies. No sons, uh, no children. And so the guy's brother has to marry her because they need to have an heir. He needs to have an heir. And so she will have an heir through. The guy's brother, but of course he dies, and the other one dies, and then seven of them die. It's it's meant to be a comical situation. It's absurd, and the Sadducees are having a lot of fun setting up this situation for Jesus, because the crunch is whose wife, sorry, whose husband, uh, who will be the husband of the woman in the resurrection? Well, there were seven of them. And none of them had any children. She didn't have any children to any of them. The implication is 
the resurrection is a sham. It doesn't work because it doesn't exist. It's a fairly simple argument. The scenario challenges the reality of the resurrection. Because if Moses' law is going to be good and righteous, then it's got to be able to work. And Jesus says, uh, sorry, the, the Sadducees say, it doesn't work because it doesn't fit with the resurrection. Therefore, the resurrection is not true. And Jesus needs to prove that the resurrection is true if he wants to convince them. There are many passages in the Old Testament which they have at hand which Jesus could point to. Ezekiel 37, Mount the Valley of Dry Bones, which is speaking of God bringing the dead to life, or Daniel 7, that speaks, so Daniel 12, that speaks explicitly about the resurrection of, of the dead. The problem is, these Sadducees, along with not believing in the resurrection, they also don't believe that anything in the Old Testament is authoritative scripture, apart from the first five books of the Bible, the, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. So if Jesus is going to convince them on the basis of what they believe, he's going to have to convince them from the book of Moses, which is why he goes to Exodus 3 and 15. Uh, it's the one that essentially told authority. Verse 37. Uh, but that the dead are raised, says Jesus, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush. You could have said Exodus 3, but they didn't have chapter and verses back in those days. In the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. There's Jesus' argument for the resurrection. Say it again, verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Now in your tables, have a chat and try to unpack what's Jesus' logic here? What's his argument? <coughs> I'll give you a minute. <coughs> Says it says, 
Um, maybe it's not suited to this translation, but the original quote is um, because of the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, is I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God yeah. of Jacob. It's not I is I am, not I was. Ah, so the tense gives away. So Luke should have actually included I am in there. It would be much more convincing. Yeah, I think one of the other questions does that. Yeah. So it doesn't work in Luke. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's just right the way it is. Yeah. yeah. That's right. In the other Gospels, it has this account. It says, I am. And so it's like, yeah, I am, not I was. And so it's actually a present thing. Could be... Yeah, uh, I think what's happening here is something that takes a little bit of looking into, but what Jesus is saying uh, is God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, at the time of Moses, when God says that to Moses, of course, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are well and truly dead, hundreds of years before that. And when you actually look at all the occurrences of those three guys, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when they're used through the Old Testament, especially around Exodus, and God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's referring to himself as the God who keeps the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the promise-keeping God. He's made a covenant. (coughs) He'll keep his covenant. He's acting now in the present, in Exodus, and all the way through time, keeping his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, that there'll be a great nation, that they'll have a great land, that the the nations will be blessed through them. How can God actually keep his promise to a person who never saw it? How can he keep his promise to Abraham if Abraham died thousands of years before and never saw it? What sort of promise is that? It's not a promise. It's just saying that you're going to do something. It's not a promise to them, for them. And Jesus is saying, no, all live to him. God is actually the God who is keeping his promise to Abraham. They will see that promise brought about in the end because of the resurrection. Abraham will be raised. Isaac will be raised. Jacob will be raised. And they will see many nations of people that have been blessed through them. They will see a great people. They will have the great place of God's dwelling with these people because there is a resurrection. They are not rotting somewhere in the ground never to see God's action. Jesus uh, shows them that by the very way that God describes himself that there is actually life after death. He also in doing that claims to be an authority on life after death. He goes on to explain the nature of life after death and the nature of marriage and the resurrection and how they didn't really understand what marriage was all about in the afterlife. And so their challenge actually backfires as Jesus also gains support from the scribes who believe in the resurrection and want to affirm him what he's paid Jesus pushes these guys, just like I pushed you, I guess, to actually understand the Bible, understand the text of what God says. They're just using the Bible for them to push their own agenda and their own purposes, or a bit of the Bible that they think is authoritative. They don't actually really want to listen. Their challenge isn't about gaining understanding, their challenge is about 
what they think is already true and just reading it into God's Word. And Bible reading like this is just like scientific research. You come with your own agenda, with your own questions, seeking to look for the answers that you already think should be there. Well, lo and behold, you find those answers. They just happen to be inverted with reality. And Jesus keeps the focus on Scripture uh, as he mounts his own challenge of those who are now listening to about what the Scripture says about himself. This is point four of Jesus' challenge. Because down in verse 41, he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? These challenges have been coming at Jesus, and Jesus now has his own challenge for his listeners, again, coming from Scripture. Uh, Jesus' challenge is an exegetical one. That is, what does the text actually mean in this psalm, Psalm 110? The presupposition that's behind this is that every descendant, uh, especially of the great King David, every one of his <coughs> sons, descendants who sits on the throne, well, no matter how powerful they may be, they will still defer to their forefather and have deference to him and honour him, no matter how great they are. But David calls one of his descendants, Lord, how can it be that a descendant, a son, is called Lord by David? And Jesus challenges this presupposition. He doesn't, he doesn't answer his own question. He just niggles them to pay attention to Scripture and try and understand it and wrestle with it. And in doing so, turns the challenge onto the challenges. Who's the one in control? Who's the one who's in authority here in Jerusalem? The point is not that Jesus is clever and wins the argument. Well, let's cheer. Jesus made a good point. Uh, isn't he clever? Won the argument. Let's go home. Rather, if you've got ears to hear, you actually will be open to the possibility of growing in your understanding of what the Bible says and what the Bible says about who Jesus is. See, the response that Jesus gives to them about the coin, you know, whose inscriptions on the coin? It's Caesar. And Jesus says, give the Caesar what is Caesar's. Give the gods what is God's. And it's not just a clever response. See, who has the image of God on them? Which coin has the image of God? Well, no coin has the image of God. But humans are made in the image of God. Caesar owns the coin. Give the Caesar what is Caesar's. Who owns the one with the image of God? Does. If you're made in the image of God, or if you're human, you belong to God. So if you've got ears to hear what Jesus is saying, it's not just a clever, clever comeback. Rather, if you're humble enough to hear, you'll hear that actually you've been made by God, for God, for His purposes. The irony is that they use their God-given intellect, those listening in, as image bearers, to challenge God's own king, to seek to dethrone him. 
and actually bring condemnation on themselves. If they were willing to hear, they might have heard a message that would bring them peace. The response to the Sadducees, it's not just clear exegesis of the passage, but showing who has authority over life and death and in the life to come. They think they have authority, but Jesus shows he is God's king. If only they could see that he is the Lord of life and death and the future, they could have said, oh, we misread that. We got that wrong. Perhaps we need to look at this more closely. And perhaps they may have found life. Perhaps they may have become, as Jesus says, a son or a daughter of the resurrection age. It's not about getting the right answer. It's not about being clever. And Jesus shows us it actually flows into how you actually live, like real life living. Because the final challenge that Jesus gives is not about what they believe in, it's how they conduct themselves. Verse 46. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and places of honour at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. See, these scribes and others who bring them challenges, they love to be seen by others. They love to be honoured and held up for their teaching, for how, how clever they are. They live for the praise of others. They challenge Jesus and claim him and claim um, claims against his authority while the whole time hiding behind a hypocritical marks. They actually wish to learn. Rather, they're seeking for themselves. And in the process, harm others. They devour widows' houses. They I take it that means they seek to even bring in income from the nation. Even the point of receiving a widow's last bit of money. Perhaps. And Jesus hates the self-serving authorities that mask injustice. But we do the same. It's very easy for us to point to self-serving authorities. And we in Australia we love to slam our politicians. Uh, bloody politicians and bureaucrats in here, we call them. Noses in the trough, feeding themselves and their own interests. But really, are we any different? We work hard day in, day out to serve our own interests and gain for ourselves. Are we putting ourselves in the public service? The challenge backfires on us too. We're no better than the authorities. We're as self-serving as anybody else and just like them, our condemnation is deserved. But if you've got ears to hear Jesus, he says it doesn't have to be that way. You could hear Jesus and recognise how it is that you've got it all wrong. I need to give to God what he does. God owns my life. I'm made to serve God, not my own self-serving purposes. How can I be used by God for his purposes is what we need to be responding to. I think you've got absolutely nothing to offer God whatsoever. That's actually good. God agrees. You've got nothing to offer Him. But that's the beginning of humility. A humility which God will honour. You see it in the last part of the passage. Chapter 20. Jesus looked back and saw the rich putting their gifts 
in the offering box. And saw a poor widow put in two small coins. And he said, Surely I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. A poor widow with two coins can contribute more than those with much. She gave to the Lord everything she had, her whole life. She belonged to the Lord anyway. Our challenges mask our hypocrisy. They backfire and condemn us. We need the humility to say, actually I've got nothing. My challenges are just a mask. The key is, how do you treat God's word? Do you recognise that you're made by God for him, for his purposes? Apart from that, we're nothing. Well, how do you test that? How do you approach God's word? How do you be presently taught by God? Say, no thanks, there's your answer. Jesus takes his challenges back to the Bible, but they won't hear. All of us need to listen with care what God has given us, humbly seeking to learn from him, submitting to Jesus, paying taxes. If it's submitting to the union, submit to the union. If it's coming and recognizing for the first time that Jesus is here, let us know. And we'll help you do that. And together, we'll read God's word and see you do. Lord, thank you for your, your kind word to us. Even though we see Jesus being challenged by biased uh, authorities. Thank you that Jesus replies so that we can actually see the, the way to life, the way to have life with you beyond this life. Give us the humility to submit to Jesus, to read your word in humble hearts, and so understand who we truly are before you and how to respond. We pray for this. Prayer. Hi guys, so I'm Eleanor, um, and I'm in my first year studying social science. Um, and we're going to enter into a time of prayer now, where we get to open our hearts and speak to God together. So if you would, let's pray together. Um, Father in heaven, thank you for the hard work of each individual that puts work in the group. Thank you, Lord, that we get to meet freely on campus without fear of physical persecution. But, Lord, do help us to be bold and persevering if we ever face emotional torment and persecution for being a Christian. Father, we also thank you for the incredible work that goes on in focus. Lord, we thank you for the persistent uh, individuals involved in the particular ministry, and we pray for their perseverance in continuing their hard work. Lord, thank you for the wonderful conversations and we also pray for continued uh, fruitful conversations. Help us to love, sorry, help us to have a sense of urgency in proclaiming your word to the international students because our time is limited with them. In all, Lord, thank you for the ministry of purpose. Father, we also pray for dinners for eight. Thank you, Lord, that uh, humans are created social and made to have meaningful relationships. Lord, as the uh, event dinners for eight comes near, we pray that 
through meals together, we can get to know each other as well as love and encourage each other in Christ. Uh, Lord, we also thank you um, for our brothers and sisters at Sydney University involved in the Christian Union. Lord, thank you for all the evangelistic talks, walk up, and events such as Mark Dharma occurring throughout the past few weeks. Um, we thank you for fruitful conversations that were had and for the relationships that were formed. And, I, uh, and we pray for um, the continuing of these relationships and for them to flourish. We also pray um, that although the formal evangelistic weeks have finished up, that we um, that the members continue to evangelize and spread the wonderful saving message. Um, and Lord, we also thank you, God, for today um, and for Robin's dedicated work to bringing us weekly talks. Thank you for the book of Luke and thank you for the life and resurrection of Jesus. Um, Lord, as we go through our weeks in our busy uni lives, help us to always find time to dwell in you, praying and reading our Bibles daily and spending time fully dwelling in you. Uh, help us to head out to lunch together um, and continue in fellowship, loving and supporting each other. And we pray this all in the Son's name. Amen. Amen.